We're in the middle of, yeah, this section on 1 Corinthians on sexual ethics, Christian sexual ethics. And you remember last week at the end of chapter 6, we looked at sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. I was going to say, as a follow-up to that, we did a talk called Sex and Who We're Becoming. And it's our most downloaded, downloaded talk at SOMA. So you can have a look at that, where we look at the effects of pornography and the effect of sexual immorality uh, on us as people and how that damages us and damages our capacity for relationship. So you can check that out. <laughs> um, and now we're going on to sex within marriage, just looking at these six verses, chapter seven. Uh, sex in marriage is, it's a little bit awkward to talk about in church, so I guess we don't always talk about it as much as perhaps we should, but it is very important to deal with and uh, heads up, yeah, the next section is on celebrating the joys of single life. So, so that's coming as well. But Paul focuses on sexual relations within marriage in chapter 7, 1 to 6. And Paul is responding to matters in the church uh, that have been raised with Paul by a letter that the church sent to Paul asking him questions. And Paul is responding to those questions. And this is the first question. Paul says, verse 1, Now to the matters you wrote me about, uh, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So one of the questions uh, the Corinthian church was asking is, um, should sex be off limits for Christians? And perhaps we ought not to get married. Uh, if we do get married, perhaps sex is just for having children. And then after that, ought we abstain from sex? So they were asking that kind of question and movements like that did occur in the ancient world, in the Greek world, in Corinth. For example, <clears throat> Plato and the Platonists uh, were famous and they said that the body is bad and the soul is good and sex has to do with the body. And so sex really just drags us down from the spiritual and so better to avoid sex wherever possible. <clears throat> and Plato's view or the platonic view is still current today. We still use that word platonic to refer to sexless relationships. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and some Christians, <clears throat> sorry, some of the Christians in the church in Corinth wanted to know uh, whether it's still okay uh, for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul immediately says, verse 2, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And Paul knows perfectly well uh, that there's a lot of sexual temptation for us, even in our society, certainly in Corinth. And most adults some of the time and some adults most of the time are, are very, um, very easily affected by the temptation which is everywhere. And Paul says, yeah, because of the city we live in, and last week we saw that there was a lot of prostitution, it was very normal, kind of every street corner in Corinth, and um, it, w it was a very different culture in that sense to us, and yet even in our society, there is so much um, sexual temptation everywhere we look. And Paul says, if you're married, verse 3, 
The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, the idea is, of course, that sex in God's eyes is absolutely vital to our married relationships and uh, we need to have sexual relations with our spouse on a regular basis and make that a priority. In fact, we're called to give ourselves to our spouse and God calls us to not only get from self-gratification but to give to our spouse in the area of sex. And he goes further, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. This is the idea of mutuality in marriage. In fact, mutual ownership. We own one another's bodies within a marriage covenant. Just as Paul said in the previous chapter that if, we, if we're Christians, we are, our bodies belong to Christ. So, he says, the wife's body belongs to her husband and the husband's body belongs to her wife. And at this point, some feminists and others have said, well, Paul was a man, and of course he's seeing it from the man's perspective. But I think it's great the way he so carefully balances this out and says, no, the woman has rights over her husband's body. That's an extraordinarily revolutionary thing to say in the ancient world, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, as well as the ancient Jewish world. In that world, the woman isn't in charge of her own body, her husband is. But here, the man isn't in charge of his own body, his wife is. And in the ancient world, I'm sure people would have asked Paul, what are you saying, Paul, about the wife here? And I'm sure Paul would have said, she's a whole human being. And if she's married to this man, then she has a right to his body. Now remember from last week, our body is part of who we are and we need to get this. Uh, this needs to be said over and over and over again because of all the platonic thinking that still permeates through our culture. Our body is part of who we are. Our sexuality is part of who we are. And beauty, listen, beauty is part of God's original good creation. But because we live in a culture that worships beauty, not as a gift from God, but as a God, as an idol, because of that and because of all the ancient Greek fantasy about human beauty, uh, which still permeates our culture today, for lots of people inside and outside of the church, the pendulum has swung completely the other way. And there's kind of an underlying cancerous attitude that beauty is ungodly or, sh or shallow or vain. And, you know, the story of the Bible just isn't that. <laughs> uh, the Bible from cover to cover celebrates beauty. At the same time, the Bible is honest about beauty. That beauty is fleeting, meaning that it doesn't matter how beautiful we are, that beauty will fade. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. It's temporary, it's transitory. But that doesn't mean it's bad or evil or shallow. 
It simply means that there are more important things. So don't make beauty a god, but our beauty, our body, our sexuality, that's all part of who we are as human beings. And someone might say, you need to love me for me, not my body. And there's a grain of truth in that. And if you're dating somebody and that's how you feel, perhaps you need to break up with that person. But here's the problem with that line of thinking that you need to love me for me and not my body. That's platonic thinking. Uh, that's like saying you need to love me for me and not my personality. Um, no, our personality is part of who we are and our body is part of who we are. Um, that doesn't mean we need to worship our body and it doesn't mean we need to work out nine hours a day and become vegans, although that's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it simply means beauty and sexuality in our body are all part of who we are. Hmm. And if our bodies are not our own, husbands and wives, wow, then we need to learn to, to simply care for our body and give our bodies to our spouse. And caring for our body doesn't mean we have to kind of live on spinach and work out all the time. It simply means, yeah, we want to care for our bodies. We, we're holistic beings. We take care of our body for our spouse and not for vainglory. It's for our spouse. And we give our body to our spouse. Now, the only other place in all of ancient literature where we see what Paul is saying here about the mutuality of the man and the woman's bodies and how they own each other's bodies. The only other place in all of ancient literature is the Song of Songs. And in fact, either side of the Apostle Paul, thousands of years before him, the Song of Songs, thousands of years into the future, both sides of Paul, this idea of this mutuality that he talks about here isn't there. And he's getting it from the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs is a, a meditation on the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. And if we look back at the Song of Songs, we see the extraordinary mutuality of husband and wife in their sexual relations. Like on their wedding night in Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 16, he's praising her beauty. And she speaks back. Awake, north wind, come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I'm not going to unpack that for you. But notice that she speaks back to him and that sex is mutual. He romances and speaks and verbalizes his love for her for particular parts of her body, not just her personality. And she doesn't simply sit there and listen. She speaks back. She jumps back. In fact, if you know the Song of Songs, the guy is Mr. Poetic, isn't he? But in the book as a whole, she is the one who speaks first and she speaks by far the longest from cover to cover. In other words, she loves sex with her husband. 
Sex is a two-way experience where what God wants is both husband and wife to give and receive pleasure and joy to their partners. So we need to blow up this unhealthy imagery that sometimes comes out of our modern Western culture that men are kind of sex, sex mongers and women are kind of Victorian prudes. In the Song of Song, that isn't the case at all. She responds to her husband. She's involved. She's there. She's happy to be there. She loves her sensuality and her sexuality with her husband. And he responds in turn. At the beginning of chapter 5, the scene shifts and there the two lovers are in bed afterwards and he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with its spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Notice here that sex um, is a way that the two become one flesh in the sense that her body is now his body. Nine times in this one verse, the husband says, my garden, my sister, my bride, my myrrh, my spice, my wine, my milk, my honey. Not in a jealous, possessive sense, but in a one flesh sense. And he's saying, listen, we are one. Her body is now my body. Her joy is now my joy. Her experience is now my experience. We are absolutely together. We're on the same page. We are one. And notice the last line of this scene in the Song of Songs is, eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. Now the little headings in your Bible that say, who says what, those are not in the Hebrew text, but were put there by our translators into English uh, to help us make sense of this ancient poetry. And there's a lot of scholarly debate about who speaks here. My Bible says the friends say, eat friends and drink. But it's a bit awkward if we're to picture that the friends are kind of, are kind of in, the, in the bedroom on the wedding night, so to, so to speak. But a lot of scholars think the person who speaks here is God, that God is present with the two lovers. He looks down upon the two naked and unashamed lovers on their wedding night, and God smiles and says, eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. And that's how God feels about sex. If you think God is down on sex or down on sexuality, you don't understand God. You don't understand that God created sex and you obviously have not read the Song of Songs. God created sex, not you, not Hollywood. And what he made is incredibly beautiful. Eat friends and drink. That's how God feels about sex inside the covenant of marriage. And some of us who were raised in an atmosphere akin to the Platonic world that sometimes invaded uh, the Corinthian city, some of us have been raised in a similar um, understanding that sex is dirty or that sex is really dragging us away from what is spiritual. 
Um, we may have heard all kinds of messages from our childhood, perhaps from aunts and uncles and grandparents and perhaps even parents, or from wherever. And those old statements that we've heard uh, continue to haunt us and it's awfully hard for us to hear what the Bible is really saying about how God views sex and the glory of sex. But here it is. And Paul is drawing from the Song of Songs in 1 Corinthians 7. Sex is a mutual giving and receiving and that's what God wants for us as man and wife. And in fact, the husband and the wife own each other's bodies. That is so cool. In fact, they have authority over each other's bodies. So Paul goes on <clears throat> in verse 5, do not deprive each other. The Greek here could be translated do not defraud each other. And he used this word already in chapter 6 verse 8 where he was talking about Christians suing one another and defrauding and cheating one another. It's the same word that he uses here. Do not deprive or cheat or defraud one another in the area of sex. Paul's point is that when you're married and you don't make love with your spouse, husband or wife, um, you're taking from your spouse what is rightfully theirs. And sex should never be used as a reward or a punishment. Uh, if you're good, come here. If you're bad, stay away. If you're withholding your body, withholding your sexuality from your spouse, Paul is urging you not to do that. There are always reasons for <clears throat> married couples not to make love. Long day, long week, long life, <laughs> in my case, or in our case, who are getting older. <clears throat> I'm tired. The mortgage, the pressure at work, the osteopath, the children running around the house, um, the orange juice on the floor, the brokenness in our marriage or our problems together. There are always reasons and some of those things will need to be addressed. And part of the joy and the discipline of, of married love is to figure out day to day and year to year rhythms that allow us to have and maintain a healthy sex life and to seek healing and reconciliation where it's needed. Do you know what? Paul kind of ignores all of that for now. And his main point is, his main guideline is, hey, you guys, you, you need to make love. Now, the way married couples sometimes think about this is if we're having problems and issues, <clears throat> We need to work those things through, go to counselling, um, get help, stay up all night, hashing things, things out. And then when we've patched all that up, we might begin our sexual relationship again. But Paul's point is sex is part of the healing process and part of what opens us up to one another and keeps us together. And don't get me wrong, there is a time for counselling. There is a time to get help. There is a time to stay up late hashing things out. Uh, but sex is the way to be one, the way to build community between you and find some healing. 
which means the times when we feel the most distance between each other are often the times when we most need to be, to be intimate with each other because the, the sex will help draw us back into relationship and unity. Sex is not a, a panacea or for all of our marriage problems or issues, but it is part of the healing process. And when we stop making love because we have marital problems, that's like throwing away the medicine when we're sick. Sex is part of how two people become one and stay one. And he says, listen, don't deprive one another. And he goes on in verse 5, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. And it's very interesting what that's in aid of, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There may be times when you need a season of prayer. Um, to be able to, to devote half a day or a day or three days to prayer. And while that's going on, you may decide by mutual consent to not engage in normal marital relations, but not for too long says Paul, and only if you agree to do that together. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is fascinating because we might have thought Paul would have said, now that you're in Christ, now that you have the Spirit, develop self-control, guys. But no, I think Paul is a pastor and he knows that in some areas of life, and perhaps sex is one of those, one of the supreme examples of this, that if we're married and we're having regular sexual relationship, then to go without for a considerable period can well tip us over to be very vulnerable to temptation. And in a town like Corinth, temptation would await on every street corner. So if you're married, staying pure and living in wholeness and holiness doesn't just happen by prayer. It doesn't just happen by knowing Christ or by spiritual disciplines. It's by making love to your spouse all of the time. To invest in your marriage, to invest in your sex life with your spouse, to give effort and energy and time and creativity and spontaneity and time away from the kids and to create a safe space in your house for love um, that is clean and smells nice and where you can be alone and have conversations and read the Song of Songs uh, and make love. And that's one of the best ways you can fight off temptation. And Paul here is saying you need to come together often, often, frequently, regularly. And don't, don't uh, have a break from that for too long. And he goes on, verse 6, I say this as a con concession, not as a command. This is really important. A lot of people misinterpret this and think he means marriage is the concession, which is based on a misinterpretation of verse 2. The concession is what he's just said in verse 5, that you can take a small break from sex for the sake of prayer, that's a concession, not a command. Meaning you don't have to take a break from sex 
for prayer. And if you want to devote yourself to prayer and make love with your spouse at the same time, God bless you, right? <laughs> but, but, on, but only one thing can interrupt regular mar- marital sex, according to Paul here, and that's prayer. But only if you both agree and only for a short time. So what Paul says in chapter 7, 1 to 6 can be summarised as go for it. <laughs> you know, take the time, make the effort. Give your heart and passion and creativity and poetry to this. Make it a priority. Make it a central part of your relationship with your spouse. It's worth fighting for. It's worth every ounce of energy. It's what God wants for you. It's not too late to restart the process. Uh, And if your marriage has been off track because of brokenness or laziness or bad theology or bad health or who knows what, it's never too late to get back on track again and to come back to what God intended, to come back to making love with your spouse, to come back to caring for your body, giving your body and giving yourself to your spouse. It's never too late and and it takes thought and it takes time and it takes energy to think all that through with all the pressures of life, but it's worth every ounce of effort. And it takes faith in God. Uh, It's not just about our bodies coming together. It's about our souls too. It's about God healing our souls, healing our shame and fear so that we can be naked and unashamed with one another as he intended. And it's interesting how prayer is the only reason that Paul gives here for a married couple to take a break from sex. This reminds us that our marriages are in the context of God's gracious provision and care. So a few thoughts on God's grace as we finish up. Do you remember those wonderful words at the end of Genesis chapter 2? Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then shockingly in the next chapter, Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation and sin. And now suddenly the radical change comes to the Garden of Eden where formerly uh, they walked with God and they loved being in God's presence and basking in his glory. They experienced intimacy and communion with God and with one another in the garden. But then they disobey him and now God comes into the garden. What do they do? They hide. Their eyes are open. They know they've sinned. Suddenly they're afraid. They're ashamed. And their first impulse is to run and hide and to cover themselves, to hide from God and also to hide from each other. No longer are they naked and unashamed. And ever since then, all of us, all of us have been looking for a place where we can be naked and unashamed again. But with all our sophistication and all our boldness and all our so-called maturity, we quite frankly are afraid to be naked with each other. And when God comes into that garden, he finds Adam and Eve hiding. They're afraid, they're ashamed. And we hear in our society people saying, 
We've got to be open. We've got to let it all hang out. We've got to reveal our innermost being to others. But all of us have learned a long time ago that we can't indiscriminately bear our souls to everybody because everyone here has experienced this problem in life. Perhaps when you were a little girl or when you were a little boy, you did something bad and you were deeply embarrassed about it and the weight of your guilt was upon you and you went to your best friend and you told them and said, don't tell anyone else. And then the next day, it was all over the schoolyard. Is there anyone who hasn't experienced something like that? We've all experienced that. Um, and we learn to be careful. I told somebody a secret. They jumped on my soul. So I'm, not, I'm going to be careful next time. I'm going to hide. I'm going to conceal my true self. I'm going to conceal what I'm thinking. I'm going to conceal what I'm feeling. We become masters at hiding ourselves. And we need that. It's not safe to expose ourselves to everybody. And God gave us clothes and other ways to conceal ourselves. But in spite of that, we still yearn for paradise restored. We still long for some place where we can be naked and unashamed. And God has provided two places for us where we can be naked and unashamed. First, it's in his presence through Jesus Christ. There's no place on this planet where I'm more comfortable, more at ease, where I can easily be myself than in the presence of God through Christ. Partly because I know I can't fake him out. <laughs> I know that all my subtle games of concealment are not going to work with him. My being an artful dodger, my directing attention away from the truth about me isn't going to play with him. He knows me. He knows when I sit down. He knows when I stand up. Before words even form on my lips, he knows them. <laughs> and so there's a sense in which I can't escape his vision. I can't escape his gaze. I'm laid bare before him, whether I like that or not. <laughs> and a, a lot of people are nervous about that. They're afraid of God. They don't want God to look at them. They want God to overlook them. And that's the tragedy of those who do not know Jesus Christ. That those who don't know Jesus have never experienced his tender-hearted gaze at them. Where God looks at me and sees all of my sin and says, I love you. That's what the gospel is all about. That the God who knows me in all of my nakedness loves me. How else can David say, search me and know me, O God? Search whether there's any wicked way in me. Cleanse my heart. How can David say that? It's because there's something about God that when we come to him, even in our guilt, even in our foolishness, 
even in our inadequacy and weakness. There's something about God that though he rebukes us and admonishes us, he never ever humiliates us. And he has such a tender way of restoring us and correcting us so that we can be comfortable with him. That's one place, that's the supreme place where we can be naked and unashamed. But the second place God has provided is in the covenant of marriage. That by his grace, in our marriages, we can set up a safe place where we can be naked and unashamed. A place where we can take off our clothes and be known without fear. And revealing ourselves to one another in marriage does involve a kind of nakedness which when it's received in love yields immense pleasure but when it fails it can result in the two of us going back into hiding. But this is where knowing God in Christ is so important. To know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is the ultimate comfort and strength that I have to be truly naked in my marriage. And it works the other way too, that the more I can reveal the truth about myself to my spouse and still know that I am loved, the more I understand how God loves me. And there's no human being in this world who knows me better than my wife. We've been married over 40 years. And guess what? She loves me. And you know what difference that makes? What difference that makes? That the person who knows me best nonetheless loves me. The person who has seen me naked, body and soul, loves me. Is it any, any wonder that God uses marriage as the supreme image of the way he has set it up with him so that we can be absolutely intimate with such a depth of communion and such an assurance of his love that we can be comfortable with him and so that that can spill out into our married relationships where we learn to be comfortable with each other. Even revealing some of the most difficult things about ourselves to our partner so that they can know us to the absolute depths of who we are. May God give you strength to be truly naked in your marriage and to live as God intended you to live. Amen.